This morning our passage is 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 to 27. There's some notes in your bulletin. You can follow along with the message this morning, some of the main points that we're going to cover. We're going to begin with a few vocabulary words, just some basic terminology. If we can get these ideas lined out up front, it'll help us walk through the rest of this passage a little bit more smoothly. So we'll start with this. When John writes about the last hour, he's talking about theology, not chronology. And so our passage begins with this phrase, verse 18, children, it is the last hour. When John writes that, he's not trying to say there are 60 minutes left and then the world is going to end. He's not talking about time on a clock. He's speaking theologically. He's not talking about a specific amount of time. He's talking about the final period of redemptive history. So this last hour is a period of time that started with the incarnation, with the first coming, and it will end with the second coming when Jesus comes back for his church. In a sense, you could say it starts with the ascension, really, when Jesus uh, finishes his work on earth and he returns to heaven, and it will be fulfilled and consummated when Jesus returns. That's the last hour. Secondly, thinking about some of these terms, John, he uses the word in this passage, is the only New Testament author to use the word or the term Antichrist. And that's probably a little bit of a surprise for some of you, especially when you look at the verses. I've given you 1 John 2.18, 2.22, 4.3, and 2 John 1.7. Those are the only verses in the entire New Testament where the word Antichrist actually shows up. And that's probably a little bit surprising. You may not be surprised that it's only John because you probably thought, well, John wrote Revelation and surely the Antichrist shows up in Revelation. I think he does show up, but not by the name Antichrist. You don't find that title in the book of Revelation. I think Daniel makes reference to this figure, but he doesn't use the term Antichrist. I think Jesus in the Olivet Discourse makes reference to this figure. He doesn't use the term Antichrist. I think Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, makes reference to this figure. He uses the term the man of lawlessness. This is the only time, these are the only verses you'll find this term Antichrist. And it kind of has a basic meaning with two different sort of spins. In one sense, the Antichrist is against the true Christ. He stands in opposition or defiance to the the true Christ. In another sense, this Greek prefix anti also means a substitute, meaning the idea that the Antichrist tries to stand in the place, tries to fulfill the role of the true Christ. That's the idea John's driving at when he uses this term, the Antichrist. And we're going to read it here in just a minute. We'll talk more about it. Uh, here in a moment. I want you to remember the big overarching purpose of this particular book of the Bible. We've talked about this a lot. John wrote this letter so that believers can have certainty about their relationship with Jesus. We find that in 1 John 5, 13 that says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's writing to people who already believe in Jesus. He's not writing to try to convince people to believe. He's writing to people who already have faith in Jesus. And he says, I'm writing that you may know 
that you have eternal life. He wants believers to have certainty about the relationship that they've entered into with Jesus Christ. And to this end, throughout this book, John lays out a number of tests. We've seen including this morning, three of them. First is the moral test. We've covered that. We're going to see it again. It's the basic idea that you can have certainty about your relationship with Jesus if you obey God's commandments. Obeying God's commandments is not how you have a relationship with Jesus, but it is how you have certainty about your relationship with Jesus. Second, we talked about the social test. Do you love other people? Do you love your brother? It's not how we earn salvation or eternal life, but it's one of the tests we pass or we take or we hope to to check off if we want to have certainty about our relationship with Jesus. The third test is a theological test. It's a doctrinal test, and the doctrine centers on who Jesus is. Who is Jesus Christ? And so we're calling it the Christological test. And it's a matter of do you believe the truth about who Jesus is. And so this brings us to the big idea. It's very simple, very straightforward. Believers can have certainty about their relationship with Jesus if they abide in the truth about Jesus. This is the Christological test, not for how we earn salvation, but how we find assurance about our relationship with Jesus. We can have that assurance and that certainty when we abide in the truth about Jesus. That's the big idea we're going to talk about this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word open or turned on, look at 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read the passage beginning in verse 18. The Word of God says this, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we stop this morning in the midst of our week of busyness and and what we normally think of as everyday life, and we just stop on this Lord's Day to remind ourselves of the truth about who you are, 
You are a great, great God. We've sang that truth this morning. Father, we stop and remind ourselves who we are. We are sinful people. In word, in deed, in thought, in action, in emotion, Lord, we fall short of your greatness and your glory. We are thankful that we can have a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, this morning, those of us who know Jesus come to your word. We come to this book of the Bible, and we're looking for certainty. We're looking for assurance. Lord, others in the room come, and they're not followers of Jesus. They come not knowing eternal life through your son, and we pray that they would find it this morning. Father, in all of our lives, we pray that your word would be living and active and powerful and sharp, that it would pierce our hearts. Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Talk just a minute about church history. Church history tells us that the Apostle John, the man who wrote this book, was the last living apostle. That's a stained glass window of the Apostle John, and you can see he's got a little scroll coming off his hand that says, in the beginning, reference to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. Church history says the Apostle John was the youngest of the apostles and ended up being the last living apostle. Church history says that all the other apostles were killed for their faith in Jesus, not just their faith in Jesus, but their absolute steadfast refusal to stop talking about Jesus. John had faith in Jesus. He refused to stop talking about Jesus, but he didn't come, at least what church history tells us, he didn't come to the same sort of demise as the other apostles who were martyred or killed their faith. And so on the one hand, you look at John's life as it's presented to us in the pages of church history, and you say, John was the lucky one. All the rest were sawn in two or tied up in bags and thrown into the ocean or lit on fire or crucified. They came to terrible ends. John didn't have to experience that. He was the lucky one. And in a sense, that's true. In another sense, John lived longer and had more opportunities to suffer and to be persecuted for his faith. It wasn't necessarily being put to death for his faith, but he was persecuted. And by living longer than all the other apostles, he experienced something horrific that some of the rest of them were spared. He saw the early churches, the churches planted by Paul and Peter and the other apostles, he saw these churches being led astray by false teaching. And it it terrified him. It it horrified him. It, It broke his heart. He saw these churches being led astray by all sorts of false teaching. And I just want to say something about these false teachers that John saw leading the church astray. All of those false teachers talked a really good game about Jesus. None of those false teachers popped up and said, we don't like Jesus. They all popped up and said, we love Jesus. Jesus is great. Many of them would have been willing to say Jesus is Lord. Many of them would have acknowledged Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah All the way from the Judaizers to the Gnostics and everybody in the middle of that spectrum, these false teachers showed up and they had lots of nice things to say about Jesus. What John understood is that while they were saying the name Jesus and they were using the right vocabulary, 
They were operating with a different dictionary. They were saying all of the right things externally most of the time, but it was sort of a fingers crossed behind my back, wink, wink, a shuffle of the feet, a nod here, a look there. They didn't mean what they thought they meant, what everyone else thought that they meant. And so John writes this book. He's a pastor. He's looking at these churches being led astray, being torn apart, being led to destruction by false teachers. And as he lays out these tests, the moral test, the social test, he lays out a doctrinal test. And he begins to talk about Jesus. And he begins to say, you've got to make sure you believe the right things about Jesus. It's not enough just to say, I believe in Jesus. The question is, well, fill in the blanks there. What does that mean? Who do you think he is and what do you think he accomplished in his life, his death, and his resurrection? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What does John have to say about this Christological test? Number one, the Christological test separates the antichrists from the children. It makes a division into two groups of people. In John's mind, there's this group of people, the antichrists, little a, plural with an S at the end, antichrist. He says many of them have come. And then there's this group that he calls the children. Now, my guess is at some point in your life, you've heard the expression, there's only two types of people in the world, people who fill in the blank here and those who fill in the blank there. People say that sort of thing all the time. I'll give you just a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. There's two types of people in the world. One who, according to the picture on the left, know how you're supposed to eat a Hershey chocolate bar. You break it apart, brick by brick, block by block, according to the lines, and you eat the bar one piece at a time, nice, neat, clean. Then there are other people, some of you, savage people, uncivilized people who rip the wrapper off and you just start chewing on the thing with no regard for the lines that they very kindly put in to the chocolate bar. There's two types of people in the world. I'll give you another example. Some of you have a cell phone and on the bottom it looks like this. And just putting that picture up on the screen, my heart is beating fast right now. I'm having a little bit of a panic moment. I'm just curious, most of you have your cell phone in your hand or close by anyways. It'd be a good time to make sure it's turned off. So pick it up, make sure it's turned off, and let's just have a moment of honesty, okay? Just look at your phone right now. Do any of you on the bottom where it's email or text or something like that, do any of you have a number bigger than 148? Be brave and raise your hand. One in the back, one in the front. Do any of you have a number bigger than 500? A few. Do any of you have a number bigger than 1,000? Oh, my land. I can't go any higher. I just got to stop. Right? There's two kinds of people in the world. There's people who can live with their cell phone with these little red numbers that get bigger and bigger and bigger. My wife's one of those people. I look at her cell phone screen. It doesn't bother her. She's got red bubbles all over it. She's got these numbers and apostrophes and it's, it's just chaos. And then there's people who know how you operate a cell phone who keep all their notifications at zero. There's two kinds of people in the world. You get the idea. Look, this is kind of striking, and this kind of makes us uncomfortable in 2020, but this is what John says in this passage. There's two kinds of people in the world. 
little a antichrists and children. Look what he says in verse 18. He's writing to children. We've seen these terms of endearment. He's called them dear children. He's called them the beloved. These are people who believe in Jesus. There are believers, and we might be prone to say, well, there's believers and unbelievers, but as John draws the contrast in this passage, the contrast he draws is there are believers, the children, those who love and follow Jesus, and there are antichrists. He says, you've heard antichrist, singular, you've heard he's coming, you know he's coming, but let me just tell you this, he says, even now many little a antichrists have come. Little a antichrists. They're little a antichrists in the sense that they do on a small scale what the big a antichrist will do at the end. John's not trying to be inflammatory here. John's not trying to hurt anyone's feelings here. He's just acknowledging the reality that there are people, he says they have arisen from within the church, who are doing now what the big A Antichrist will do at the end. And maybe you could summarize it with a few words like this. The Antichrist will deceive, deny, and depart. He will try to deceive people, even God's people, Jesus says, if possible, about the truth. He will deny the truth about Jesus, and they will depart from the fellowship. They will depart from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Deceiving, denying, departing. And John says, you know the, the Antichrist is coming. You've heard that. Even now, there have been many little a Antichrists who have gone out. They're trying to deceive people about the truth. They're denying the truth. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. And they are departing from this fellowship. Now, we live in a politically correct society. And there's plenty of times where we kind of roll our eyes at a politically correct society. There may be worse things in the world than a politically correct society. There are societies around the world where you're not allowed to say anything about anyone there are societies around the world, cultures, where maybe we don't care about other people at all and you try to intentionally be cruel. But one of the side effects of living in a politically correct society is that when John draws this contrast between the children and the antichrists, we sort of bristle. We sort of say, man, that's just really, really black and white. Surely there's some middle ground in there where maybe, maybe you're not a faithful follower of Jesus, but do we have to put them in the category of Antichrist? You understand, John's not saying everyone who doesn't follow Jesus is the equivalent of the end times, last days, big A, persecute the church, Antichrist. He's not saying that. He's just saying there's similarities here in deceiving people about the truth, in denying the truth, in departing from the fellowship. He says many of these antichrists have come. It's an interesting thing that over the last 30 to 40 years of church history, we have given an incredible amount of attention to the big A antichrist. Who is he? Where is he from? Is he alive now? Is he on his way? 
Is the clock ticking? And people are just fascinated with this. And I think if Pastor John were here, he would say, look, you know he's coming. But right now, there are many little a antichrists, and you need to be aware of them, people who are denying and departing from the truth about Jesus. What does he say about this test? Secondly, the Christological test rests on the truth about Jesus. The foundation of this test is the idea that there is truth about who Jesus is, about what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, and about the call he places on our lives. There is a bedrock foundational truth. Remember who he's writing to. Verse 18, he's writing to children. Look at your copy of the scriptures. Look at verse 20. He says, the children have knowledge. Right? There is a truth, and you can have knowledge of that truth. Look at verse 21. He says, the children know the truth. You know the truth. Look at verse 21. He makes a distinction between lies and truth. There are some things, John says, that are lies about Jesus. There are some things, John says, that are true about Jesus. Look at verse 22. He says, if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you don't have the Father. That's one of the lies. If you say he's not the Christ, well, that's a lie, and it does not give you access to the Father. He says, if you deny that Jesus is the Son of God, you're a liar, and you're one of the Antichrists. Verse 23, he continues to talk about the Son and the Father. All this, verse 20, 21, 22, 23, it rests on the understanding, the assumption that there are true things about Jesus and there are lies about Jesus. The truth gives you access to the Father. The lies separate you from the Father. The truth gives you fellowship with the Father. The lies put you in the category of Antichrist. I realize we talk about this regularly, but I think it's important when we live in a pluralistic society that says to us, we hear it all the time, that any idea about God is as good as anyone else's idea about God. You can have yours and I'll have mine and what works for you is great and if it doesn't work for you, well, that's fine. I'll take this version, you have that version and we'll all just sort of agree to disagree but really agree that we're all right even though we disagree. It's a strange mix of worldview that we live in. John just kind of cuts through the middle and he says, look, there's truth and there's lies. There's some things about Jesus that are true. They're not gonna change. And there's some stuff about Jesus that's as old as the Bible itself. And it's not true. It wasn't true then. It's not true today. It doesn't matter how many people raise their hand and vote for it. It's just not truth about Jesus. You can talk about your perspective. You can talk about my perspective. We can talk about this perspective or that perspective. The real question is, what does the Word of God say about who Jesus is What does the word of God say about what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection? And what does the word of God say that Jesus is calling us to do, the kind of people that he's calling us to be? There is only one standard by which you and I can judge the truth about Jesus, and it's the scriptures. It's not my opinion, your opinion. It's not popular vote. It's not what makes us feel comfortable or at ease. 
It's what the scriptures say. The whole thing, this test rests on the truth about Jesus. Number three, what does John say about the Christological test? The Christological test calls believers to abide in the truth about Jesus. That's an important word in this passage. It gets repeated over and over and over again. Abide, abide, abide. The call is to abide. The concept is present in verse 19. In verse 19, John talks about people who were within the church. They departed from the church. They were within the realm of orthodoxy. They've departed from the realm of orthodoxy. And John says, their going out proves that they were never truly one of us to begin with. He says, if they had really been one of us, they would have remained. They would have stayed with us. They would have, you could use the word, abided with us. Look at verse 24 and 25. Brings this idea up again of abiding. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. There's something that we heard. John wants it to abide in us. He says, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you let that truth, you let that message live in you, then you too will abide. First it was a message abiding in us. Now it's us abiding. You will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. Pretty simple, straightforward passage. John kind of talks in circles, but if you just slow down and think about it, it's not that complicated. He says, there's a truth about Jesus. It doesn't change. And your job is to let the truth about Jesus abide in you, in your heart and in your mind. And when you do that, the truth of Jesus abiding in you, you will abide in the Son, in Jesus, and in the Father. You have a genuine relationship with him. And the result of all of it is eternal life. Life that is not taken away. Life that, it's not here today and gone tomorrow, but that lasts forever. Now, in Baptist circles, we tend to use the phrase, once saved, always saved. If you want to form a line, and you want this line to be people who will fight to defend the security of our salvation in Jesus, I will be at the front of that line. You understand? I will stand at the front of that line and I will say, if you are a born-again, regenerate believer, a follower of Jesus, you've trusted in him for salvation, God has declared you just, you've been justified because of what Jesus accomplished on your behalf. The Holy Spirit indwells you and is working in and through you to finish the work that God has started in your life. I will be at the front of that line to defend that concept. If you form a line to say, let's fight for this, I'll pass. And it's not because I think that this phrase says something not true. I just don't think it says enough about what the Bible talks about when it talks about the security of our salvation in Jesus. I'll just give you an example to try to explain what I'm telling you. Let's just say that hypothetically, hypothetically, one of these days you find yourself in the middle of a global pandemic. And let's just say in this hypothetical scenario, you go to the grocery store And the shelves are empty. Toilet paper is gone. You can't figure out why, but the toilet paper is all gone. You go down the cleaning supply aisle. All they have is Windex. There's nothing else there. 
Like all, you go to the milk aisle, apparently the cows have dried up and they're not making milk, you can't find milk. The chickens have all died, you can't find eggs anywhere. And you say, okay, surely the peanut butter aisle is going to save me. And you go down the peanut butter aisle, and instead of Jif, all you see on the shelf is one can of great value creamy. Okay? In this scenario, go ahead and buy the great value creamy. Buy it. Just know that it's gross. It's not real peanut butter. Will it fill your belly and put a little meat on your bones to get you through the global pandemic till they restock the GIF? Absolutely. But it's not the real thing. And when this hypothetical global pandemic calms down and you go back to the grocery store and the toilet paper shows up and the disinfectant shows up, they don't limit the number of eggs you can buy, and you go down the peanut butter aisle and the GIF is back, don't go back to the cheap imitation substitute. Go for the real thing. This is what I'm telling you. I'm telling you this cheap idea that gets thrown around of once saved, always saved, it doesn't say enough about our security in Christ. It's just sort of a cheap imitation substitute to the real thing. The historic doctrine that we ought to talk about and hang on to is the perseverance of the saints. It's a much better biblical concept for what it means to have security in our relationship with Jesus. This idea of once saved, always saved tends to get watered down to a cheap, silly version of at some point in your life have you given a spiritual head nod to a certain idea. Yes, I nodded my head spiritually and I went along with the thing. Great, don't worry about anything else. I'll see you in heaven. That's what it tends to get watered down to and and what it tends to get reduced to. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints says, look, when you're born again, when God begins a, a, a new work in your life, he's going to bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. When the truth of God, the truth of the gospel takes hold of you, it will abide in you. That's what John says here. Let what you've heard abide in you. He's not saying, will you give a spiritual head nod to this and then go on your merry way. He's saying this gospel needs to take root in your life in such a way that it begins to change who you are from the inside out. The word of the message of the gospel of the truth of the scriptures, it abides in you. And John says when that happens, you abide in Jesus. You abide in the Father. The word of God abiding in you, you abiding in Jesus. And he says then the result is eternal life. It's eternal It's not here today and then you might lose it tomorrow. It's not you get it today, but you better not mess up tomorrow or God's going to take it away. The word abiding in you, you abiding in the Son, the result is eternal life. John is calling us to abide in this truth. One last thought. What does he say about the Christological test? Number four, this test motivates us to teach the truth about Jesus, motivates us to teach the truth about Jesus. Look at verse 26. He says, I'm writing to you about those who are trying to deceive you. There are people out there, little a antichrists, they're trying to deceive you. That's why I'm writing. Look at verse 27. He says, but you have an anointing. The anointing you received from him abides in you 
and you have no need that anyone should teach you. At which point you close your Bible and say, why am I here? Let's go home. I have the anointing, right? The key to understanding what John is really saying about teaching is to understand what he means by this anointing. The Greek word is chrisma, chrisma. And most Bible scholars think that when he talks about this anointing, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. That's the view I'm going to take. And if you look in our passage at verse 20, he says, you have been anointed by the Holy One. I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit. When you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live in your life. Look what he says down in verse 27. This anointing that you received abides in you. That's the role of the Holy Spirit, to abide in the believer. And at this point you say, there's a lot of abiding going on in this passage, isn't there? The Word of God is abiding in us. We are abiding in the Son and in the Father. This chrisma, this anointing, the Holy Spirit is now abiding in us. And the result is, John says, you don't need anyone to teach you. He's not talking about sermons. He's not talking about Sunday school. He's not talking about Bible study. He's talking about false teachers. And he's saying, look, the truth of God is living in you, and the Holy Spirit himself is living in you. What's the Holy Spirit's job? The Holy Spirit's job living in you is to give you new life in Jesus, to make you alive when you're dead, is to help you understand the truth about Jesus. The Spirit's job is to make Jesus look great, And the Spirit's job is to make you more and more like Jesus. This anointing, the Holy Spirit, is living in you. You don't need these false teachers and their new ideas. John says you don't need that. And we know he's not talking about all teaching because what in the world is he doing in this passage? He's teaching. And he says, I'm writing to you, verse 21, it's not because you don't know the truth. I'm writing to you because you do know the truth. I'm teaching you. I'm reminding you. When we get this idea of this Christological test and that there's truth about Jesus and that it needs to abide in us so that we abide in him, the motivation isn't just to throw up our hands and say, well, looks like we're set for heaven. The motivation is to roll up our sleeves and say, we've got some teaching to do. We believe the Holy Spirit lives in God's people. And when we teach the truth about Jesus, the Holy Spirit will take the folly of what we preach and drive it home into human hearts. There's teaching about the truth that's our responsibility. This is the Christological test. In some ways, I think it's the hardest test for us to pass in 2020. All of these tests are challenging. When you really drill down and you think about what John is setting before us, this one is really challenging. Because we live in a day and age where everything is to be judged by my perspective, my experience, my emotions. That becomes the final standard for what is good and bad, what's right and wrong. And that gets reinforced at every level of our society. It all sort of boils down to us in the end. And what John's presenting in this passage is a radically different view of spirituality. And he says to us, there is truth about Jesus. It's objective. It's outside of you. It's external from your opinions or your thoughts about it. It's eternal and it's unchanging. 
And that truth needs to abide in you. It needs to remain in you. It needs to live in you so that you abide in him. And it requires us to teach. It requires us to say the same things, the true things about Jesus over and over and over again. And as John lays it out in this passage, he ends up sort of giving us two options. Option one, you can depart from that truth. You can deny that truth. You can deceive yourselves and others about that truth. Or you can abide in that truth. My prayer is that we're people who abide.